2 Timothy 2. Tonight and Sunday are really messages that go together. I almost, I've worked the first part of this week on 2 Timothy 2, and I started working just this afternoon on 2 Timothy 4. That's what we're going to look at Sunday. And I almost feel like they're A and B, 1 and 2, uh, that they go together. So you guys, you already have a leg up because you're the A team, Wednesday night team. But you're really going to have a leg up Sunday uh, when everyone else is scrambling to be brought up to speed on 2 Timothy and jumping into chapter 4, you're going to already have chapter 2 under your belt. Before we get into your outline, uh, let me just say a quick word about the pastoral epistles. Jason preached last week. He brought some of this up. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about this more at length on Sunday. There is a great temptation when you read the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, that you say, hey, this is really good stuff for my pastor, for the elders. I really hope they will read these books. I really hope those guys will pay attention here. And these books are uniquely helpful in a lot of different ways uh, for people who serve in the role of pastor or elder or overseer. However, even if you do not have that title and serve in that position and hold that office in a local church, you do need to understand what these books say about what the calling of a pastor is. And one of the reasons you need to understand it is you live in a culture that is completely confused about what the calling and the job and the expectations of a pastor are. And if you're not careful, you'll just breathe that cultural air in and live in that fog of confusion. So I as a pastor need to know these books. You as a church member need to know what to expect from me, your pastor, from our staff, from our ministry leaders. And many of the things that you will study in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, especially the stuff we're talking about tonight and tomorrow, many of these things do actually apply to many of you because many of you teach or lead in some capacity in our church, teaching Sunday school, teaching Wednesday night, teaching Sunday morning, teaching VBS, teaching on mission trips, various things where you're entrusted with leadership, teaching responsibilities, and most of the stuff uh, that we talk about tonight and Sunday certainly applies to you. So, let's think about the timeline of Paul's life, and let's try to figure out how 2 Timothy fits in with Paul's life. Philippians and Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon are a group of letters that Bible scholars usually call the prison epistles or the prison letters. And they're called this because Paul wrote these letters. He mentions this in all of them. He wrote these letters while he was in prison. Now, there is a little bit of debate about where and when he was in prison when he wrote these letters. But I'm just going to push the debate aside and say most Bible scholars think that the imprisonment when Paul wrote Philippians, uh, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, the imprisonment in view was Paul being in house arrest in Rome, and you can read about that at the end of the book of Acts. There's a couple of other theories. Maybe it was Caesarea, maybe it was Ephesus, but most Bible scholars say, no, 
He was in Rome under house arrest. That's where the book of Acts ends. And he writes these letters, and so we call them the prison epistles. Tradition tells us, I'm going outside of the Bible now, old ancient church tradition tells us that Paul was eventually released from house arrest. He continued to travel around the Roman Empire. He continued to preach the gospel. He continued to plant churches. Tradition says he made it all the way out to the western part of the empire to Spain. And then tradition tells us he was arrested a second time and he was taken to Rome. And in this second imprisonment, he was not under house arrest, but he was held in a place called the Mamertine Prison. That's where 2 Timothy comes in. He wrote it during a second Roman imprisonment, probably around A.D. 64 or 65. So I'm going to show you some pictures just so you can get a visual of where Paul might, emphasis on the word might, have been when he wrote 2 Timothy. So this is Rome. Have any of you been to Rome and to the Mamertine prison? A few of you have been here, okay? So you go to this building. It's sort of got red, pinkish brick. And I've put a red box. That's my red box to say there's a door right there, okay? Right there at street level, and it kind of goes down. So the next picture is going to show you the red square is sort of where you would come in that door, and you would go down into this initial level, and the stairwell on the backside wouldn't have been there originally, but this grate in the middle of the floor, this hole on the ground would have been there originally. And the next picture shows you the actual prison cell. And it's kind of dark, but there's a circle at the top. That was the grate in the floor that you saw in the previous picture. So we're going from street level down, down another level. And this is the place where the prisoners would have been held uh, originally. It would have looked something like this. At one point in time, there was some shrines and an altar and different things uh, as Christians would go there and they would see this site and they would have various worship services. But in recent years, they took all that stuff out because they wanted this place to look just like, as much like it looked like when Paul would have been there. Okay, Here's the thing about the Mamertine prison. This was not like county lockup where you're there for a little while and you get out. This was not the kind of place where they sent you for a couple of years and then you would get out. There was no TV. There was no weight room. There was no three square meals a day. When you went to this prison, there were two ways out. One, you died in the prison and they hauled you out. Two, they took you out so that they could execute you. And tradition tells us that Paul was eventually taken out of this prison so that he could be executed. Nero was the emperor in 64-65 AD. Paul was a Roman citizen. He was not allowed to be crucified. So tradition says he was beheaded. Now I've told you a lot of tradition, a lot of stuff outside of the Bible. But that gives you a general sense of what was happening at the end of Paul's life. And if you want to go back to the Bible in 2 Timothy... You can go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9 to 18. This is not our passage, so we're not going to read it. But it gives you a sense of what life was like for Paul in his final days as he was imprisoned uh, in Rome. He was facing trials, legal trials. He had been abandoned by most of his friends. In fact, at one point in time, by all of his friends, they all left him high and dry. He had friends 
who had worked with him, prayed with him, taught with him, who had completely walked away from Jesus. Their faith had, what we would say today, had completely deconstructed. The biblical word would be apostasy or falling away. He was cold. He asked Timothy to bring his cloak. He's cold. He wants his coat. And he's bored. There's not a lot to do in this hole in the ground. So he says, could you bring me my parchments? Could you bring me some books? Could you bring me something to read? I need something to occupy my mind. Gives you a sense of what life would have been like for him in these last days. Our passage is chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. And the big idea of this passage is really simple, but certainly important. The church is called to make disciples of all nations. And I've taken the wording, obviously, from Matthew 28, 18, 19, and 20. What I'm saying to you by giving you this big idea is that those two passages, Matthew 28 and 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 7, those two passages are essentially talking about the same thing. It's the mission of the church to make disciples. So what I'd like us to do first is actually read Matthew 28. So I think I have it up on the screen, or you can turn in your Bible if you'd like to turn there. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In that passage, the Great Commission, there is one and only one command. There is only one verb in the Greek in the imperative tense, and that is make disciples. The one thing Jesus is telling his followers to do in Matthew 28 is go make disciples. Make disciples. Go explains as you're going, you're going to make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is talking about evangelism. You've got to share the gospel with these people, and you've got to see them put their faith in Jesus. You've got to baptize them as believers. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, Jesus says. That's part of making disciples. You have not obeyed the Great Commission until as you're going, you're sharing the gospel, you're baptizing new believers, and you're teaching them what it looks like to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the command in Matthew chapter 28. Now, our passage is 2 Timothy 2, 1-7. The wording is different, but what it's describing is essentially the same thing. So look with me at 2 Timothy 2, 1-7. Scripture says this, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hard-working farmer 
who ought to have the first share of the crops. Verse 7, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. When you study the Bible, there's many times that you will come to a passage, many times where I come to a passage, and I think to myself, what in the world do I do with this? Maybe it's an Old Testament passage, maybe it's an obscure passage in the New Testament, maybe it's something you're not quite undersure how different parts fit together, what the, the point is, what is the big idea here. And when you find yourself in that position, a good thing to do is to s- simply ask simple questions. Here's some questions that you can ask when you feel like you're stuck in Bible study. Question number one, what does this passage teach me about God? Is there anything in this passage that I need to learn about God? Question number one. Question number two, what does this passage teach me about me, human beings, people? Question number three, is there something in this passage that I am called to believe? Something that maybe I don't have the right mental category for, and I need to repent. I need to change my mind, and I need to think differently, and I need to believe what the Bible says. Question number four, what does this passage call me to do? Is there anything in this passage that I am called to go out and do, to take concrete action? So when you look at Matthew 28, it's not a complicated passage. But it is certainly helpful in Matthew 28 to understand that the only command in Matthew 28 is make disciples. That's the heart of the Great Commission. And everything else in Matthew 28 revolves around that command to make disciples. The one thing Jesus calls his people to do there is go out and make disciples. You need to know that he has all authority. All the authority in heaven and on earth. Why do you need to know that? Because he's told you to go do something, make disciples. You need to know that he says, as you're going, make disciples. Go out intentionally and just in everyday life, wherever you are. You should be about the business of making disciples. You need to know that you're called to evangelize people, to baptize them. You need to know that you're called to teach people everything that Jesus told them to observe. And you need to know that in this process, in this task, as you're making disciples, Jesus is with you always to the end of the age. But the heart of it is the command to make disciples. In this passage, there's not one command, but there's three. And when you take these three commands together, they give structure to the passage and they help us better understand the task of making disciples. So all I want to do tonight is walk through 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 7, and I want to point out to you the three commands, things that we're called to do, and then try to piece the rest of the passage in to help us make sense of things as we go. So, how do we make disciples as a church? Here's the first answer. We must, now this is a point, I'm just going to say this, you have to fill in the blank exactly as I've told you to here. We must be strengthened to guard the truth of the gospel. Do not fill that in as, we must be strong to guard the truth of the gospel. That is not what Paul tells Timothy here. What he tells him is, Timothy, you must be strengthened. 
When you study this in the original language, I called my former pastor this week to talk with him about this passage. And I said, I need to make sure with you that I'm reading this correctly and I'm understanding what's going on in the original. I said, this looks to me like a passive imperative. A passive imperative. Timothy is commanded to do something, but it's something that Timothy himself can't do. That's a strange thing, right? Usually when I give you a command, it's something that's within your ability, something that you can do, something that you can manage. Get up. Go out. Get that thing for me. Come over here. Speak louder. Those are all things you can do. But what Paul says in this passage is, Timothy, you must not be strong. That would fall to Timothy. He says, Timothy, you must be strengthened. You can't strengthen yourself. Only God can strengthen you for this task of making disciples. He literally says, you must be strengthened by grace that is in Christ Jesus. The only way you can receive this kind of strength is the grace of God. And the only way that you can receive the grace of God is in the person of Jesus the Christ. And the command is to be strengthened. Why does he need to be strengthened? It's because Timothy, the pastor, and his congregation in these letters have been commanded to guard something. It's military language. You are to guard something that's been entrusted to you. Something has been given to you. And you need to protect it. And if you're going to protect it, you need strengthening. You're not going to strengthen yourself. The deacons in your church are not going to strengthen you. I, Paul, your spiritual father, your mentor, I can't strengthen you. Uh, the committees in your church in Ephesus can't strengthen you. The latest podcast or best-selling book at Mardell can't strengthen you. God can strengthen you. His grace received through Christ Jesus. You need to be strong because you have been called to guard something. Look at 1 Timothy Back a page, chapter 6, verse 20. Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Timothy, you are to guard the faith, the truth of the gospel. You're going to have to be strong for that. But you don't have the strength, so you're going to have to be strengthened. Look what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Not pull your spiritual bootstraps up and guard the deposit, but depend on, rely on the Holy Spirit, God in you, God with you, God who will strengthen you, and guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to you. What Paul's saying to Timothy is, you've been entrusted with something, and you need to keep it and guard it and watch it. Don't let it change. Galatians 1. If we or an angel from heaven come and proclaim to you a gospel different than the gospel that you originally heard, let them or the angel or us be accursed. 
you've got to guard the deposit. You've got to guard the good news of Jesus Christ. Jude. In the opening verses of Jude, he says, I really wanted to write to you about our common salvation. However, I found it necessary to write to you to tell you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You have to fight for it. You have to guard this good deposit. That's what Paul is calling Timothy to here. There's not an easy task in ancient Rome to guard the truth of the gospel. That was not an easy task during the many centuries where the Catholic Church plunged people further and further and further away from the truth of the gospel. That was not an easy thing to do during the Protestant Reformation when being a Protestant many times could cost you your life. It's not an easy thing to do in the United States of America as atheism and godless evolution and all sorts of anti-biblical ideas begin to rise. It's not an easy thing to do today in Odessa, Texas. It's hard. It's hard. You're going to have to be strong. But you don't have that strength in you. And Paul knew it. It wasn't that he had a low view of Timothy. It's that he had a realistic view of human nature, of human beings. It's, Timothy, you can't do this on your own. So you must be strengthened by the grace of God in Jesus Christ so that you can guard the truth of the gospel. If we lose the truth of the gospel, no one will make a disciple. No one. If we lose confidence in the truthfulness of this book, no one makes a disciple. If we begin to question and doubt the holiness of God, no disciples. If we stop telling people that they are dead in their trespasses and sins, no disciples. If we stop calling people to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection, no disciples. If we stop telling people that they must take up their cross, count the cost, and follow Jesus, no disciples. Paul knows that. He knows he's about to die. He's got one last chance to talk to Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, you have got to make disciples. That's what Jesus told us to do, make disciples. Timothy, you need to be strengthened so that you can guard what has been entrusted to you. The faith once for all delivered to the saints, the good news of the gospel. How do we make disciples as a church? Answer number two. We must entrust the gospel to the next generation. Look at verse 2. 2 Timothy 2, 2. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I want you to look at that verse, and I want you to count generations of believers in that verse. Generation one would be Paul, number one. And Paul passed something down, the good news of the gospel, to Timothy and other witnesses. You heard something from me, Timothy. Paul, number one. Timothy and the witnesses, generation number two. Generation number three, 
Timothy and the witnesses are to entrust it to faithful men, faithful people. That's a third generation. And they're to do it in a way that the faithful men will be able to teach others also. It's four generations of believers in one verse. Paul to Timothy to the faithful men to others. He's not only saying, Timothy, you need to entrust the good news of Jesus to the next generation. He's saying, Timothy, you've got to entrust the good news of Jesus to the next generation in such a way that they are ready to stand up, own it themselves, and in turn pass it to the next generation. And in that process of passing the faith from Paul to Timothy and the witnesses to the faithful men to the others, if there's any breakdown, then this generational faith is lost. This is not just a New Testament idea. This is a Bible idea. And it went completely haywire in the Old Testament. Turn in, the, in the, your copy of the Scriptures to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. We'll start in verse 5. The he here is the Lord. He established a testimony in Jacob, and he appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them. Who's the next generation? It's the children yet unborn. And arise and tell them, tell them what? The testimony and the law, the things commanded. Tell them to their children that they, who? Their children. That the children of those who aren't yet born would set their hope in God. And not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments, that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. It's four generations in Psalm 78. The fathers received the word from God. They were to pass it to their children. They were to pass it to the children not yet born, so that the children not yet born could in turn pass it to their children. It's the same pattern. It's generational faith. You've got to pass down the truth of the gospel to the next generation, and you have to do it in such a way that they're prepared and equipped and able to pass it down in turn to those who are not yet born. If you keep reading in Psalm 78, which we don't have time to do, you see what happens when that doesn't happen. When one generation fails to pass it down to the next generation, when they don't tell their children when they don't equip them to own the gospel, to rise up and own the truth of the gospel, and then pass it down to another generation. Everything goes haywire. So, 2 Timothy 2, we're going to pass this gospel down to the next generation. It's something that begins in the home and happens in the church. It has to happen in the home, and it has to happen in the church. It's not either or. It's both and. If you look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy's faith, 
a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now I'm sure it dwells in you. Timothy did not have a Christian dad, but he had a Christian grandma and he had a Christian mom. And they did what Psalm 78 told them to do. They told their grandson and they told their son the truth about who God is. They passed down the faith to Timothy. And now Paul's telling Timothy, what happened in your home needs to continue to happen in your home, but it also needs to happen in the church. And you've heard these things from me and your mom and your grandma, and you need to pass them down to faithful men, and the faithful men need to pass them on to others also. How do we do at this today? How are we doing? I mean, the, the bald statistics would just say to you on the face of it that each generation is less churched than the one before it. That belief in Jesus Christ, the truthfulness of the Bible, the exclusivity of the gospel is smaller in each younger generation than it is the generation before it. There's a study that comes out every two years. It's a, a team study by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway. And they team up every two years and they do something called the State of Theology Study. They just released the numbers for 2022. It's not good. It is not good. You can get online. You can read it. Stateoftheology.com. Here's two big 30,000-foot takeaways. Number one, people who are part of a church that believes the Bible really is the inspired, inerrant Word of God, they score better on this exam than people who attend churches that don't believe the Bible is true or people who don't attend church at all. Their scores are better, noticeably better. They're still bad. That's the second takeaway. They're better than non-church people, but they're still horrific. This is a terrifying study. You can go on and read it. It's terrifying. And I'll just tell you what the study in 2020 shows and the study in 2022 shows. It shows that in the United States of America, as a group, Christians, I'm not talking about every Christian, I'm not talking about every church, I'm just talking about Christians in the United States are doing a lousy job of Psalm 78 and 2 Timothy 2. Absolutely lousy. They are not telling their children the truth about who God is. They are not entrusting what has been given to them to guard. They're not entrusting that to the next generation. Again, Psalm 78 shows you what happens when that doesn't happen. Now, I know the average age in this room, and I know some of you are thinking about your kids and your grandkids, and I know some of you are thinking, I did my best. I, I don't control their heart. And you're right. You don't control anybody's heart. It is not your job or my job to change anyone's heart. That is the job of Almighty God, to remove hearts of stone and to give hearts of flesh. God does that. I can't do it and you can't do it. God gives the growth. But we plant the seed. And we water the seed. Or sometimes we don't. And I'm not blaming you individually. I'm just talking about us as a culture. We've done a lousy job of planting gospel seeds in the next generation. 
We've done a lousy job of watering gospel seeds in the next generation. And now we're shocked when we read the state of theology report and there's no harvest. There's no growth. We didn't plant a seed. We didn't water the seed. We didn't guard what was entrusted to us. We didn't entrust it to the next generation in the right way. That's the second thing Paul's telling Timothy you've got to do. You have got to entrust the gospel to the next generation. How do we make disciples as a church? Here's answer number three. We must be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. This is what Paul says early in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. He says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. There's the idea of God's power again. You can't do this on your own power, Timothy. You need God's power. But when he says share in suffering, that's an imperative. It's a command. Timothy, you're called to suffer. You're going to suffer. If you guard the gospel, if you entrust it to the next generation, if you're faithful to what God's called you to do in your church, suffering is going to come. He says the exact same thing in chapter 2, verse 3. Share, that's a command. Share, it's an imperative. Share in suffering. Share in suffering. And then in the rest of 3, 4, 5, and 6, he gives Timothy three examples of what this suffering might look like. How is it that Timothy might suffer as he's guarding the gospel and entrusting the gospel to the next generation? Here's the first example or the first illustration. Our suffering may be like that of a soldier. That's verse 3. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. I think when Paul talked about soldiers here, there's no doubt he had in the back of his mind the Roman legions. It was just a completely unprecedented military force in the history of the world. There was nothing like it to compare it to. Unique in its discipline. Unique in its training. Unique in its focus, its singular focus. Unique in its understanding of the chain of command and taking orders and doing what your superior told you to do. And he says, Timothy, when you're a soldier, they're suffering. Timothy, what you're doing is kind of like the suffering of a soldier. Soldiers put themselves in dangerous situations, don't they? Paul knew that he was asking Timothy to do that. One of my friends texted me this week, and he asked me if I'd read this book. The book is called Dangerous Calling. It's by Paul Tripp. It was written in 2012. I read it a long time ago, close to when it came out. And uh, the friend was saying, hey, this would be a good book to read with your staff, with your elders, with your leadership. Uh, and it is an interesting book. It's a good book. It's talking about the dangers that churches face, the dangers particularly that pastors face. Maybe dangers of persecution, maybe dangers of discouragement, maybe dangers of false teaching, maybe dangers of moral failure. One of the fascinating things about this book, I have a, a copy from 2012. On the back, there's five blurbs. 
You know what a blurb is on a book? You find some famous person to write some words and say, this is the greatest book ever. You should read this book. This is a life-changing book. This is the greatest. You, how could you not read this book? Okay, there's five of them on the back, all from people in ministry. One of them is Dr. Danny Aiken, who did our marriage conference a couple years ago. So Dr. Aiken's on here. He's the first one. There's four others. Of the five who wrote a blurb for a book titled, Dangerous Calling, Confronting the Unique Challenges of Pastoral Ministry. Of the five, three of them have disqualified themselves from pastoral ministry. They wrote on the back that this was a life-changing book. One had an affair, got divorced, lost his family. Uh, One shockingly, was uh, accused of crimes, embezzlement, and attempted murder. One of them has completely deconstructed his faith and says he is no longer a Christian at all. It's dangerous. Dangerous. Timothy, like a good soldier... You've got to aim to please the one who enlisted you in this service. It's dangerous, Timothy. There's a lot of ways you can go off track. And it might bring suffering into your life. You're putting yourself into dangerous situations. But Paul is warning Timothy that he will suffer, maybe like a soldier. The second illustration, our suffering may be like that of an athlete. An athlete. Different idea here. Verse 5 says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. I don't think I have to tell you that in Paul's day there was no Major League Baseball, uh, no NBA, no NFL, no NCAA, no NHL, none of that sort of stuff. There were games, the Olympic Games held in Greece, uh, the Isthmian Games held in Corinth, something called the Nemean Games, the Pythian Games, all sorts of games. And all these different games where athletes would go and compete in these events, they had rules and restrictions and regulations. Just one example. Some of them said you had to complete a very specific 10-month training course before you were allowed to compete in the game. And when you showed up, you had to sign your name and swear an oath that you had completed the correct training, and only then would they allow you to enter. And if it was shown or proved that you didn't do it, you were automatically disqualified. You have to compete according to the rules. You remember the Olympics, Tokyo? One of our best sprinters, Shikari Jackson, tested positive for marijuana. She didn't get to run. That's the rule. You broke the rule. You're the favorite sprinter to run. You're faster than all of them. You broke the rule. You don't get to run. Paul says it right here. Athletes are not crowned unless they compete according to the rules. It's baseball season. There's two interesting baseball things happening right now. One is an old guy named Albert Pujols, and he just joined the 700 Home Run Club. There's now four of them. Babe Ruth, Hank Aaron, Asterisk, Barry Bonds, and Albert Pujols, four of them, 700 home runs. The other one, interestingly, is another home run stat. It's a guy named Aaron Judge who plays for the Yankees. You hold your boos and your hisses for the Yankees. Aaron Judge, he's sitting on 60 home runs, 
And for days now, he's been stuck on 60. And every time he comes up to bat, ESPN stops what they're doing and they put him on TV because he's on the verge of getting 61 home runs. You know why it's interesting that ESPN would stop what they're doing to show someone who's about to get 61 home runs in a single season? It's interesting because that's not the record. There's three men who have hit more than 61 home runs in a single season. Do you know their names? Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa. Two of them have done it more than once. Well, they've blown past 61. Why do we care so much about 61? It's because we all know now those guys did play according to the rules. So it's almost like nobody cares about your record. 70, 73, 66, nobody cares. 61, that's what we care about. Roger Maris, he competed according to the rules. These other guys didn't compete according to the rules. They might have their name on Google. They might have their name in the Guinness Book, World Records, whatever. But everyone now looks at it and says, no, nah, we don't care about that. We care about 61. We're going to stop the world of sports and we're going to watch somebody to see if he can get to 61 or 62 or 63. Paul says it right here. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Listen, Paul is not telling Timothy that he needs to earn his salvation. It's not what he's saying to Timothy. He's not saying keep the rules so that God will love you. He's saying, Timothy, keep the rules so you don't end up like some of the guys on the back of this book. You got to play according to the rules, Timothy. Or you're going to disqualify yourself from leading God's people in the task of making disciples. You might suffer like a soldier. You might suffer like an athlete. Thirdly, our suffering might be like that of a farmer. Verse 6. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Any of you ever farmed for a living? We're all amateurs. Farming's hard. When I lived in Oklahoma, we had a lot of wheat farmers in our church. A lot of wheat farmers. When I lived in Kentucky, we had a lot of soybean farmers and tobacco farmers. It's hard work. Hard work. Take it back to Paul's day where there was no center pivot irrigation systems. You couldn't call Lucas and get a piece of Caterpillar heavy equipment delivered to the farm to move dirt. You took a shovel and you moved the dirt. There's no combines. There's no mass-produced fertilizer. There's no YouTube to get on and see how other people did it. I mean, none of that. You're just on your own. That's hard work. It's slow work. Farming is slow work. You start something and then you wait and you wait and you wait and you keep working and seemingly nothing happens and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting, but you do it all, all of that hard work with hope that there will be a harvest in the end. Farming is hard work, but it's not hopeless work. That goes back to the book of Genesis when God told Adam, 
by the sweat of your brow, thorns and thistles. It's going to be hard, but there will be a harvest. Adam, your family can still bring forth a harvest. It's just going to be hard. Hard work, but it's not hopeless work. And Paul's drawing a parallel here for Timothy, and he's saying, you know what, Timothy, farmers work really hard. Timothy, the task of making disciples is hard. You cannot microwave a disciple. You cannot push a button or submit a form online and make a disciple. It's really slow. Really slow. And sometimes you feel like you're going backwards. Sometimes they feel like they're going backwards. Sometimes you feel like you don't know what you're doing. Sometimes you're exhausted. It's hard work, but it's not hopeless work. It's not hopeless. We plant the seed. We water the seed. And we trust that God will give the growth. We guard the truthfulness of the gospel that's been entrusted to us. We do our best. It's hard work to entrust it to the next generation in a way that they can entrust it to our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids to the ones who aren't yet born yet. And we trust that God's word will not return to him void. That doesn't mean we don't have to work hard to guard it, to protect it, and to entrust it to the next generation. It says you're going to suffer, Timothy, maybe like a soldier, maybe like an athlete, maybe like a farmer. And then I love what he says at the end of verse 7. I don't know that there's anything quite like this in all of Paul's letters. He just stops. He's given him three commands. Command one, be strengthened. Command number two, entrust these things. Command number three, share in suffering. Maybe like a soldier, maybe like an athlete, maybe like a farmer. And then he stops and he says, think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. I think that's a good way to end tonight. Is to hear the word of God. What does this passage command me to do as a Christian? Well, commands me to guard the gospel, commands me to entrust the gospel to the next generation, commands me to be ready and willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel, and then Paul just hits the pause button in this letter. Paul's life is short, and he knows it. This is a short letter, and he pauses to tell Timothy, Timothy, think over these things. Don't just rush past this. Don't just move on to the next thing I'm about to tell you. Stop and think over these things. God will give you understanding in everything. So we're going to do that tonight. I'm just going to ask you to bow and to think and to pray, to reflect, to meditate on what we've seen in 2 Timothy 2. What does it mean for those who teach and lead? What does it mean for those who are part of a church? What does it mean as we try to make disciples together? Take a moment and think over these things.
Father, forgive us when we come and we rush in to a time like this and we hear your word and then we rush out and immediately begin to think about everything but what we have just heard from you. God, give us understanding as we think over these things. What does it mean for us in our homes? What does it mean for us as a church? What does it mean for us in our Bible study classes? What does it mean for us in our missions efforts? God, give us ears to hear what you are calling us to in this task of making disciples. Lord, give us ears to hear this call to be strengthened. That is not a strength that we can muster up on our own, but is a strength that comes from your grace, from Jesus Christ. God, give us ears to hear this call to entrust the good news of the gospel to faithful men, faithful people, faithful women who will in turn be able to teach others. Lord, we pray in our church that we would be serious about passing down the faith to our college kids, our high school kids, our middle school kids, our grade school kids, our nursery kids, so that they in turn will rise up and proclaim the truth of the gospel to those who are not yet even born. Father, we will plant and we will water and we pray that you would give growth. God, we pray that we would be willing to suffer in the work of making disciples. Strip away any illusion that this is an easy work, that there's a shortcut, that there's a trick, that there's a a technique that will make any of this easy. Father, help us to think over these things. Give us understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.